Today is 2006, March 10th, Lecture 44, Life, the Universe, and Everything, a continuation of yesterday's truncated Lecture 43 and the last lecture of Astronomy 161 for winter quarter 2006. We'll begin in just a moment. So welcome, everybody, to lecture number 44, Life, the Universe, and Everything. This is the 44th and final lecture of Astronomy 162 for, for this class in winter 2006. For those of you who have been keeping score, in fact, a number of you, how, how many of you took 161 from me last quarter just to see that? Wow, yeah. You guys have been with me now for 20 weeks to give you the score sheet. Uh, that's 90 lectures. That's approximately 2,000 PowerPoint slides. Um, 660 megabytes worth of 40 MP3 recordings for podcasts. Um, an amazing amount of material we've actually managed to go through. And so I, I really greatly appreciate all of you who've been coming regularly to class and your questions and emails. It's really been quite fun. It's always a privilege to teach here at Ohio State. And this class is especially fun. It's the very first time I've ever taught 161, then 162. Back to back. I've been trying to do it for the whole 12 years I've been here in the faculty, and I'd love to do it again. I don't know if I'll do it next year, unfortunately, because I know I've got an assignment for another class, and it just ain't going to work. It's really hard to schedule, but it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Certainly, we've had a lot of help with the class. Cayman, Underborn, and uh, Sean, our TA, has been a great help, and I've gotten a lot of technical help uh, from people who've, who've helped me put this stuff together. And, of course, the real surprise of this class was the response to the podcasting. Like I said, when I started the experiment, I, I bought the stuff literally at the last minute, um, said, okay, I'll give it a try. Figured after two weeks I'd see zero downloads and stop. In fact, two-thirds of respondents to the survey said they used some or all of the podcasts. And I've gotten literally dozens of emails from people all over the world, from as far north as Norway and Sweden, all the way down to southern Australia. And it's just really been a, a wonderful experience. Actually, it's surprising how well it's worked. I, actually, there's been a lot of interest in this at the university level. I've gotten a lot of email from people relatively high up at the university asking questions about how it's working. Sounds like you may find in some of your classes you're going to see more of this. Turns out it's actually turning out to be a very interesting teaching tool. Um, I've certainly found it effective, and many of you in the survey said you did as well. So I'm very glad that's worked. It's nice when, it, when an experiment actually works. And so I, I intend to do it in the future, and I know others probably will as well. No one for the business department, interestingly, yet. But um, iTunes, the Apple.com, has basically put together a site which will allow universities to produce branded podcasts. Universities love to brand things, which would allow things like class entry with restriction, things like that, for people who are worried about copyright issues. According to the chief information officer at the university, they've received 142 inquiries from The Ohio State University, including one from Karen Holbrook. So the interest is there. And so it turns out we are, we are inadvertently the pioneers. We are actually one of the first GEC mainline classes that has fully podcasted all of its lectures. So you've all been part of, a, part of an experiment that, you know, in the future could say, yeah, I was there, or, or not. You might not want to admit it. Who knows? So are we alone? Are we alone in the universe? That was the theme of yesterday's lecture where I got cut off. It was just getting interesting trying to answer that question in an interesting way. 
The question of the existence of other planets beyond our solar system is an extremely old one in astronomy. And when the question comes of are there other planets, of course, it naturally comes to is there life on those planets? How many of you saw the news report yesterday about water on Enceladus? You may remember at the end of 161, I showed those pictures of the fountains of Enceladus. They had a formal press release. It looks like they really are water geysers. And wherever there's liquid water, a constant heat source, and maybe organic chemicals, yeah, maybe there is life. Now, people got a little bit, they grooved a little bit too much on that particular life is life in water riff a bit. I actually was interviewed last night on the radio, 610W somebody. Um, so I but kept from trying to keep the uh, commuters bored. Um, explaining reducing chemistry, why there's methane on Titan. Um, but... Whenever people see water, they get excited because liquid water is one of the concomitants for life as we understand it. So now we've added to the places in our own solar system we want to visit, Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn. What an interesting thing. Life could be anywhere. Our broadening, we could have to really broaden out the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But, there, but we really want to turn this not into a science fiction thing. We want to actually ask scientifically reasonable questions. Are there solar systems around other stars? The answer is absolutely yes, there are. And we've got many of them, 160 around 200, about 200 around 160 stars. Are any of these solar systems like ours or different? So far, the ones we've found are different. They have hot Jupiters in places they shouldn't be. We haven't yet found... We're just starting to find, I should say, Jupiter's about where Jupiter is in our own solar system. So maybe, maybe we'll start finding Earth's where Earth is, or Earth-like planets there. Is anything really going to be like Earth? It's going to be hard to tell. Congress, sadly, has canceled the funding for, or is proposing, NASA is proposing to cancel the funding for Terrestrial Planet Finder 1 and 2. Write your congressperson if you really think this is important, because maybe Congress should really be funding this. Maybe this is something we really should be asking as a culture. If there are Earth-like planets, has life ever arisen on them? And of course, if there is life, is there intelligent life? We like to pride ourselves in being intelligent. But really, if we want to look at the kind of intelligence we're likely to encounter, that which is advanced to the point of manipulating electromagnetic radiation, we've only been intelligent by that definition for 100 years. Of course, really, mankind has been intelligent since we basically were, became aware of our surroundings. But this is intelligence of a different grade. Technological intelligence is very young. We don't know how long it lasts. So is there life on other planets? That's the big question we really would all like to answer. But in science, we want testable propositions. We really want questions we can answer rather than just idly speculating. So the problem of looking at life on other worlds has really become one of looking for solar systems in the process of formation. How often do solar systems arise? How many of these solar systems do we see that are evolved around evolved stars that have been there long enough, three billion years seems to be the magic number, for the time that took us to come from primordial goo to, you know, sitting in this room, basically moving primordial goo. Um, looking for evidence of life on other worlds. How would we do that scientifically? One way would be looking for things like the life molecules, molecular oxygen, ozone in the atmosphere, that's a sign of photosynthetic life. That'd be the real coup. If we saw an Earth-like planet within 50 light years of us, and we detected in its spectrum ozone and methane. Methane doesn't belong in an oxygenated world. The only place ozone comes from on oxygenated worlds is anaerobic bacteria in the guts of animals or biomass decay. So that would be a clear sign that that would be a place we would want to visit. And imagine what a discovery like that would do to focus the attention of humanity on another place where life might have arisen. The other area 
in which it might cause a tremendous sea change within us is evidence of an actual technological intelligent life on other planets. To actually say receive the radio signals or radio noise from another technologically advanced civilization within our own galaxy. We've not yet done that. Can you imagine what shock that would send through humanity if we were to do so, to find out that we were not alone in the galaxy? What the call would be to focus our attention upon that discovery? Now, how often do we expect this to happen? This is now where we're going to pick up where we left off the last lecture, selection of slides to bring us up to speed. Shameless optimism using the Drake equation is allowing me a way to estimate the number of intelligent, technologically advanced radio communicating civilizations within the Milky Way galaxy. It includes a number of factors here. The rate of star formation, the fraction of those stars that are amenable to life that have planets, the fraction number of Earth-like planets I expect around that fraction, the fraction where life has arisen, the fraction where that life has evolved into intelligent life, and the fraction of that intelligent life that has developed into a communicatable civilization using radio waves, multiplied by the lifetime of that civilization. If I take numbers that I know, the only one I really know is the rate of star formation is about one star per year in the local neighborhood of our galaxy. The fraction of stars with planets, to be generous, is approximately 20%. This could be higher, but that's approximately the number we know from measurements. Those are pretty secure. Number of Earth mass planets per system, maybe 10%. That's speculation, but in principle, it's measurable in the next decade. And after this fraction where life arises, intelligence, communication, and the lifetime of such a communicatable intelligent species, these numbers are all purely speculation. But let's be at least sort of give the speculation a reasonable optimism that gives us an answer of two per Milky Way galaxy. That does not seem like an optimistic estimate. But I can make that bigger by being optimistic and saying, you know, 100 years is too short. Maybe technologically advanced civilizations can stabilize themselves against their own suicidal tendencies and live for 1,000 years. This number goes to 20. Let's say that I have a revolution and find out that Earth-like planets are really far more common. That number could go up and increase that number accordingly. So we really don't know how this is going to work. The only one I've got any handle on scientifically right now are these three numbers at the front of the Drake equation. These are all currently speculative, but we could possibly learn something by looking at our own solar system. What if we find microbiological life everywhere where liquid water either existed in the past or exists now? That would greatly inform this number, which tell me that the optimism is there. So this is sort of where the scientific questions begin to push. The problem is, one of the things people would like is to actually meet ET. Interstellar travel is extremely difficult. The distances between stars, I hope you now understand, is extremely vast. And we're not allowed to cheat. We're not allowed to invent mythical faster-than-light drives. It can't be done in our understanding of physics. So let's just be real and live with the fact that if I want to travel physically between stars, I must do so at sublight speeds, which means I need enormous amounts of energy and large amounts of time. That requires a lot of resources on the part of any civilization to do that. And it strikes me as highly unlikely that they would build starships and travel physically between planets. Now, there are alternatives. Von Neumann machines, where you send out autonomous probes that know how to self-replicate with intelli autom artificial intelligence on board. Staple of science fiction stories from Arthur C. Clarke on out. Build them with biochemical factories, and they clone the emissary in place. OK, fine, whatever. Those are all speculative. There may be ways to cheat it. But going faster than light's not fair. 
But we can travel information at light speed. After all, the reason why we meet face-to-face is because that's how we've learned to communicate. We look each other in the eye, we shake hands, we talk. What if we just wanted to talk? When the person nearly ran me over this morning, he was talking pretty good instead of driving. Use light. Light travels at the speed of light. Information is very easily compressed into a light signal, and at very, very low cost, you can get all the information you want into a light beam, into a radio message, and beam it to another civilization. You have to wait for the response. If we discovered that with an intelligent civilization around the star 10 light years away, we would send a message saying, yo, hey, we got your message. 10 years later, they would get it. They might take a year to respond. Another 10 years would pass. That's a 20-year at least round trip time. So we're going to have to be patient. But believe me, we would learn patience under those circumstances. It would be interesting what the anticipation would be like for that response. So sending messages is probably the way to do it. And where you would do it in the radio is a particular place in microwaves is a good spot to work. It's called the water hole. It's a place where there's a very low amount of background noise in the cosmos. It's where the cosmic background radiation is low, where the radio sources in our own galaxy are low, but just before we start picking up radio noise and absorption in our own atmosphere. We stay away from the bands where all the talk we have to work through is all the cell phones and pagers on Earth. There's a nice quiet spot which anybody who actually advances their civilization to the point that they have radio astronomy would recognize as a place where there just aren't a lot of natural radio sources. And so it's the obvious hole to beam, window to beam out your messages so they would be recognized as unnatural, as artificial. The other way you can do it is you can use lasers. Lasers are unnatural as well in the sense that there are no naturally occurring optical laser sources we've ever encountered. So if you saw a laser beam coming from a star, it would be a pretty darn good guess that somebody had to build that laser. It wasn't simply a chance arrangement of gas clouds that makes that work. Now, we do see things like masers, but we don't see lasers. We don't see visible light lasers. And there's good physical reasons for why that doesn't happen. You have to actually contrive them. So if we saw a laser light from a beacon from a star, very efficient way to do it, or we saw radio waves, very strong radio waves down here in the middle, it might clue us in. What would those radio waves look like? How would we find them? Well, some people have decided that the Drake equation aside, including Frank Drake himself, have decided that this is actually worth a try. That maybe we should actually take a real gamble and actually ask the question, could we in fact search these places in the radio spectrum and the optical spectrum for signals from other intelligent species like our own? It's relatively inexpensive. You don't have to build relativistic starships. All you need is radio antennas. And you don't even need gigantic radio dishes, although you can use those. Turns out there are projects afoot, they'll see, see in a second here, where people are actually using radio antennas which are built from things that look no different than ground satellite dishes. Just a whole bunch of them ganged together. There's a lot of these projects. They have various names. Project Phoenix has been going on for a number of years. It's run by a scientific institution that calls itself the SETI Institute. Jill Tarter is one of the people who is a famous scientist who works at the um, SETI Institute. They've been using the Arecibo radio telescope and very, very sensitive receivers that can do very, very narrow band radio reception work. The advances in computers and the advances in telecommunication equipment have made this very inexpensive to build billion channel receivers. Optical and microwave study have been explored by a group of people at Harvard using both radio telescopes and microwave telescopes and optical telescopes. And there's various smaller projects. In particular, there's a project known as the, um, 
the Allen Array, which is being funded by Paul Allen, one of the founders of Microsoft. You can imagine he has a little bit of money to spare. And he's actually deciding to build an array of, of small telescopes to actually assist this, plus funding technological developments for the radio, radio equipment to do this. So here are some of the pictures of where people have tried SETI. This is the Arecibo radio telescope. It's actually a normal um, radio telescope. It's built in a bowl valley in Puerto Rico. It's 1,000 feet across. The receiver is up on top of these crates. The, the locals refer to this as El Radar. It turns out it's also used as a radar system to actually study the ionosphere of the Earth. It's run primarily by Cornell University. It's mostly used for really classical radio astronomy, you know, measuring H121 centimeter lines and galaxies, surveying the universe for radio sources and AGNs. But it also has been used in some of its off time to actually make targeted searches of nearby stars, nearby sun-like stars as they pass overhead and listening to them with the biggest radio antenna we've got to listen in the water hole for these signals. These are the Harvard SETI telescopes. They've got a radio telescope and an optical telescope, which is looking for very rapidly pulsed laser emission from, from other stars. Very speculative, but what the heck. Finally, there's a prototype array of telescopes coming together at a place in Hat Creek, California. It's where the University of California at Berkeley is involved with this. They have a radio astronomy observatory out at Hat Creek. They're moving all their millimeter telescopes out to a new site near the Sierra Nevada, but they're going to be opening up this site to something called the Allen Array. Here are three of the prototype dishes for the Allen Array. I forget the exact number of the latest configurations, maybe a couple hundred of these things, all ganged together to act like a big dish, phased together using the latest in technology. And what you can see is, is basically it's, it's a modified variation on the theme of a ground-based satellite receiver. These are individually very inexpensive to build, can be mass-produced easily. And the idea was to build a prototype array and then set them up at various places on the Earth and then use those to look for radio signals. Now, these are the receiver technologies. It's very simple. It's very cheap. In fact, some of you may have heard of the Big Ear. It was a, Ohio State had a fixed antenna radio observatory up near um, Delaware, Ohio. It's actually been, unfortunately, torn down. It's long since technology has been long since gone away. It's now part of a golf course, figures. Um, that was actually for a long time involved in early SETI experiments. Um, Bob Dixon and his collaborators here on campus worked on that for many years. The so-called wow signal came out of that. They listened to the sky as it drifted overhead, and one signal came way up high above the others and never repeated. Who knows what it is? Could have been a gamma ray burst for all we know, but you know, people started out. It was a very difficult project at first. It's getting better and better and easier and easier. But what are we looking for? And now that you've got the, the assets in place, what are we actually looking for by way of radio signals? What you're looking for is something that strikes us as artificial, meaning not the kind of radio signal we see from astrophysical sources, from real things like accreting black holes, from neutron stars, from all the various ways we know of to make radio radiation naturally in space through simple astrophysical processes. Some of the characteristics you would expect is extremely narrow bandwidth. That means a very, very narrow range of frequencies under about 300 hertz in width. It's very, very, very narrow. Natural sources tend to be very broadband, so the way you pick it out is it would just be a razor-sharp radio signal. For example, an FM radio signal that you listen to actually is a very, very narrow bandwidth signal. Even though it's at hundreds of megahertz of frequency, it's very narrowly beamed because you don't want the signal bleeding out to adjacent channels. You don't want to be listening to one station and hearing the other station come through. 
Believe me, nothing's more irritating than listening to a nice, soft classical music and getting the sidebands from metal or something like that in the same radio. You also want to look at signals that are pulsed that have a very regularly repeating pattern, but you want that repeating pattern to look different than a neutron star. And the reason for that is very few things astrophysically pulse in regular ways. When the first pulsars, rapidly rotating magnetized neutron stars, were discovered, it was speculated originally, half-jokingly, that this was LGMs, little green men, because rapidly pulsing radio sources were not previously known astrophysically. Now we know them, but the big difference is they're very broadband pulsators. A very narrow band pulsator, now that would be highly unusual. In fact, pulsation, pulse encoding, is a very common way to encode information on top of a radio signal. In fact, it's exactly what digital cell phones do. It's a kind of digital pulse encoding. It would look highly unnatural when you analyze the signal. The other thing you can do, and I, I've never talked about polarization in this class, but you can also organize the light to be very tightly, very highly polarized. Polarization means that all the light electric fields go in one particular direction, whereas most light is a mix of light with the electric field vectors pointing in all possible directions. If you've ever used Polaroid sunglasses, you get some idea of how that works. It's kind of an advanced topic. Astrophysically speaking, or in nature, it's very difficult to build polarizations above 16%, meaning 16% of the electric field vectors are aligned in some way. If you, but you can contrive in a laboratory something which can achieve very close to 100% polarization. That would immediately stand out as wacky. And so you'd really pick that up right away as something, something very funny going on there, probably not normal. The other thing you would look for is very little frequency drift. One of the things that's really a problem with astrophysical sources where it uses moving electrons accelerating a magnetic field, the normal way radio is made astrophysically, is the speeds of the electrons kind of drift in various ways. They speed up, they slow down. That will cause the frequency to sweep and, and shift. If you, ever, if you ever try this sometime, it's really kind of hard to do. If you can get your hands on an old shortwave radio, they still run around, people still have them, put a headphones on and tune it off of the bands into the interband places where there aren't stations, like listening to the BBC or something. What you hear when you do that is you'll often hear whistles and chirps and noise like that. That's radio wavelength, radio noise coming from high-speed particles, protons and electrons, in the Earth's magnetic field. There's something called, what's it going? Through the noise. You hear chirp, 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 chirp like that in some of these noises. There's a lot of strange noises that astrophysical plasmas, ionized gases, make. And what they're characterized, all those noises, like whistlers and chirps, are very rapid changes in frequency. It's very hard to get something to have a frequency and lock on a frequency, which is exactly what terrestrial man-made radios do. They lock on a particular frequency and hold it very tightly using circuitry. So these are the sorts of things you would look for. Very little drift in frequency. You might see redshift in that frequency because the source is moving relative to us. So you're looking for things that, in our studies of the universe, we don't see normally. We're looking for something that stands out and makes itself known. Similarly, if we wanted to play the game of let's point at various stars and beam radio radiation off in various ways that says, hey, we're alive, we're here. This is the sorts of things we would do. Very narrow bandwidth, very sharp pulses, maybe high polarization radio wavelengths. That's the kind of thing we would beam back that says, yeah, we got your signal, here it is. And you can code information in that. So far, the bottom line on this is that there are no detections. We've never picked up a repeatable signal from space 
that is obviously clearly artificial. But we do have some good ideas as to what they look like. Here's an example of a signal that, if you didn't know otherwise, you'd get extremely excited by. Very, very slow change in frequency. Very, very narrow frequency bandwidth. What, this is what's called a cascade diagram. Frequency goes along the horizontal axis here, and vertically is in time. So what you're looking at is a radio spectrum in time, and it's called a waterfall or cascade diagram because time sort of falls down like this, and you see this thing kind of scroll across the screen, kind of matrix style as it goes along. This little signal here is a very, very faint, very, very narrow bandwidth, very, very slow drift signal picked up by Project Phoenix using Arecibo. It's the Pioneer 10 spacecraft carrier. It's the communication carrier signal for the Pioneer 10 satellite, which is on its way out of the solar system, having already done a flyby past the planet Jupiter and heading out of our solar system. This signal screams artificial, although in this case we know we built it. And in fact, this slow drift here is in fact the very, very small Doppler shift as we're seeing the relative motion of Pioneer 10 and the orbit and rotation of the Earth. So what we would see in this signal is we would actually see, gee, there's a signal which is perfectly locked in space, but I'd see its Doppler shift modulate exactly with the rotation and orbit of the Earth through the course of a year, and I would say, oh, that's there, there I can see that particular source. That one particular is artificial. How many of you saw the movie Contact? Few people. There's a scene in that movie that, used to, that really made me want to jump up in the theater and scream. Of course, I was laughing in the other parts, but you know, what the hell. Um, and that was in the last scene of the movie, where, where Ellie the scientist is being grilled by, by James Wood, who's being nasty on that congressional committee, well, how do you know that the rich guy didn't just fake this signal for some secret agenda? And you wanted to say, my God, didn't you take Astronomy 162? Can't you answer that question? Of course you could actually demonstrate that the radio signal was coming from Vega and not from a nearby satellite. Number one, you would measure a parallax, because... Vega is close enough that you would see the annual parallax of that radio signal. Number two is you would see the annual proper motion due to the relative motion of the sun in Vega exactly the same. Number three, you'd see a different modulation pattern in the frequency if the satellite was in the solar system instead of if it was being far away. We really can tell. And you understood every single one of those words because you've taken Astronomy 162 and you know what a proper motion and a parallax is. So, should you ever get called to testify before Congress about whether a signal is fake or not, you can kick the butt of whoever the scientist is up there and say, hey, hey, you know, you may be the lawyer on the team, but you'll kick him a little bit and say, hey, 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 come on, study some astronomy, guy. This is what we can do, 40 astronomical units out. This is the kind of thing we're looking for. We haven't found it yet. It's hard to search the whole sky, but the search is basically going to go on. So the big question comes down to this. Let's say one of these days, Project Phoenix, maybe the Allen Array, maybe some laser scanning system, suddenly comes across something which meets every one of the criteria. It says, this signal is coming from somewhere, and we didn't make it. It's coming from the stars. What if we really do detect something? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think would happen? if we actually detected something. How would that change us? How would that change humanity? How would it change our view of the world? I don't know the answer to that. A lot of people worry about that. People put together protocols for contact, protocols for radio contact. My guess 
is it would completely change our way of viewing the world. And it may, in fact, cause tremendous changes in the way we view each other on this planet, because now all of a sudden, all of our petty squabbles are not going to seem quite so extreme anymore, because now there's someone else to talk to, and we don't know what their agendas and interests are. I hope it's an experiment our civilization actually gets to go through. I don't know if I'm going to see it in my lifetime or if you'll see it in yours, but it's certainly a question we can ask. And at least at this point, it's a scientific question we can ask, but it's one that's going to be have to answered on another day. Now, we've come a long ways in the questions we've been asking. We've come a long ways in which we viewed our world. This is a woodcut from the 19th century. It represents an attempt to show the medieval view of a flat earth and a, and a voyager looking out, getting to the edge of the sky and looking out into the universe. But we now know that the universe maybe isn't such a flat place. It isn't such a strange place. The reason why we keep asking this question, is there life elsewhere, is because I think in some way we as human beings have to ask that question because it's what we do. It's what makes us human is the fact that we're always asking questions. We're always seeking answers. Even if we're not sure we understand the answers we're getting or that we'll ever find the answers in our lifetime, maybe we set up those answers for somebody else. We've gone from thinking the world was flat to knowing the Earth is a sphere. We've seen that Earth from space. We see how very thin our atmosphere here is. Well, we live on the skin of the surface of a small planet. But we can actually begin to step out into the space around us. We've actually stepped out into the space around the moon. We've taken the first few steps to actually go into space. But space is a very empty place. We've stood on the moon. In fact, 12 human beings have stood on the moon during the 1970s and looked back upon the Earth. We've actually not gone back, but maybe in the future we will. It may be Chinese, it may be Indian astronomers, or maybe Americans again who set foot on the moon again. And hopefully this time when we go out there, we're really going to mean it and we're going to go out there to stay. But that's only the beginning because we've actually gone far beyond our planet because getting people out in space is expensive. You have to carry your air, your water, your food. There's a lot of radiation, which is hard on them. But robots are, well, relatively cheap, but they're tough. And these are just a handful of some of the satellites we've set out. The Cassini or and Huygens probe, Cassini orbiting Saturn, discovering water, coming geysering out of the moon Enceladus. This thing's got still three, four more years left on its mission. What more things are we going to learn in the next few years? Come on, dumping the Huygens probe down the moon Titan and squelching into a methane mudflat. Just how cool is that? We've done that all my lifetime. We've gone from, you know, when I was eight years old, I watched the first grainy photographs of Neil Armstrong jumping out on the moon. And just yesterday, I was getting interviewed by a radio program asking me about water and life on the moon Enceladus. We've come in tremendous ways. But we're only just beginning. There's the nearest star, shining in the midst of the background of incredible numbers of stars. That's Proxima Centauri. That's the next place out once we leave the solar system. And it's only the beginning as we head out into the solar system. We can start our journey by finding we, too, live around a star. The sun so that we see rise in the east and set in the west every day is, in fact, a tremendous incandescent ball of gas. It's powered by nuclear reactions. Nuclear reaction chains we understand, which forge hydrogen into helium. As stars go through their evolution, they forge helium into the heavier elements. The Big Bang comes out with 75% hydrogen, about 22% helium, and nothing else but a tracings of lithium and beryllium. But we're made of carbon. Where'd that carbon come from? It came from the inside of a massive star that blew itself apart in a supernova explosion long before our Earth was even born. 
All the metals in our body, the calcium in our bones, the iron in our blood, the gold fillings and silver amalgam in our teeth, the gold ring on my finger, all of it came from somewhere on the inside of a massive star very long ago, forged in the nuclear fires of a supernova explosion. Stars themselves, we actually begun to understand their life cycle. Cold clouds of interstellar molecular hydrogen gas, something hits them, a supernova blast wave, maybe they run into another cloud and they fragment. They fragment and come apart into star-sized pieces, and those star-sized pieces slowly but surely collapse under their own gravity. Rotating disks of material, the center lights up as a star, and the rotating disks of material condense into the planets we see around us, the Earth, Moon, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and everything else. And we're beginning now in our explorations to see those planetary systems around hundreds of other stars. We're finding out that we do not live in a unique place. We also live in a place which formed very similarly. We can see all these steps, and we've learned all about them. We find ourselves orbiting a middle-aged main-sequence star. It's fusing hydrogen into helium in its core at a temperature of 12 million degrees Kelvin. Every second that we stand here speaking, 600 metric tons of hydrogen is being converted into helium, and a small, six, and a small fraction of which turns into pure energy every single second. That energy is what provides the luminosity of the sun, and will do so for about 11 billion years. The sun does change through the course of that history, as we've seen. It gets slowly brighter, it gets slowly hotter, but eventually it's going to reach the point where it's going to run out of hydrogen, and it's going to evolve into a red giant, swell up in size and swallow the planet Mercury, leave the Earth pretty much an old, cold, dead ember for, for a very long period of time for the rest of history. We'll probably have either gone away, gone extinct, or moved on. This is probably the future, one or two billion years in the future. At the end of its lifetime, it won't be able to find any more nuclear fuel after burning helium into carbon and oxygen. It will, in the last few eruptions, throw off very gently, shove off its rest of its envelope, and leave behind a tiny core of carbon and oxygen, which stays behind as a white dwarf star, which will continue to just simply fade out into the night as it gets colder and colder into, into, into space. And the Earth will simply freeze, and it will simply go dark. And that's what the future is going to look like. The view from the Earth, some oh, say, seven billion years from now, will look something like this, a white dwarf star seen against a frozen sky. We see white dwarfs around us. These aren't speculations. We can find stars in all stages of their lifetime, from a hot A star, Sirius the dog star, to this white dwarf star, Sirius B, in this beautiful space telescope image. This is an object which is no bigger than the Earth, yet it weighs as much as the sun. It has a gravity on its surface that requires a ship, if you wanted to jump off of its surface, to move at 20% the speed of light. If you may remember from our talk yesterday about relativistic starships, it would take all the energy our society produces for a century to accelerate a rock to a tenth, accelerate a spacecraft up to a tenth the speed of light at one gravity. And yet this star has a gravity so strong as compacting an entire star into the volume of the Earth. But that's not the other possible endpoint. Very massive stars at the end of their lifetime will form nuclear fusion all the way up to silicon and iron in their cores. When that iron core collapses, it will force all of its protons and electrons together to form a massive ball of neutrons and bounce. When it bounces, the material hitting that star will cause the star to literally shred itself in a massive supernova explosion. It will shine forth, like old, the old saying from the Bhagavad Gita, with the light of ten trillion suns, outshining its entire galaxy for those few instances. But in that fires are going to be forged all of the elements that we know of. Everything on the periodic table all the way up through uranium and beyond. So everything we're made of of heavy elements is a relic of one of these stars. We've seen them in history. We've wondered at these stars. They suddenly lit up a star in the middle of the night. The Chinese 
saw the crab, the crab supernova explosion, which occurred in the year 1054 and appeared in the Chinese, Han, in the Chinese Song Dynasty Chronicles. But if I look in the center of that, I can see what was left of that original star. It's sitting there blinking at me, winking at me across space. It actually did leave something behind. That core collapsed and stabilized into an even more exotic thing than a white dwarf, stabilized into a neutron star, probably one and a half times the mass of our sun and no bigger than the island of Manhattan. Its surface gravity is seven-tenths the speed of light to break free from it. Such iron-bound stars made of pure neutrons exist as far as we know in every galaxy of the universe, and we've begun to detect them when they're rapidly rotating as pulsars, and we see the older, colder versions still cruising through our local neighborhood. The scraps of the old supernova remnant, the remnants of the, of the rest of that star, spread their way out into the interstellar spaces, mixing their metals in with the hydrogen of the previous stars and the next generation of stars that are born from them are born with those metals inside of them and their planets condense out to lock the gold created within them into their, their own bodies where they can be dug up. We can go even further. We can go even more extreme than a neutron star and imagine states of matter in which space and time literally fold upon themselves like an origami trick and are folded up and matter it seamlessly ceases to exist. It falls into a singularity, but its gravity stays behind like a Cheshire cat grin. An object called a black hole, where nothing enters and nothing, nothing that enters ever leaves. No light ever comes out. No light ever reflects off it. These objects are so exotic, they seem to beg, beg the imagination that they can't possibly exist, but we in fact see evidence of black holes all around us. There may even be a black hole at the center of our own Milky Way of a million times the mass of the sun, and our nearby galaxies for which black holes as large as 10 billion times the mass of the sun have been found. They exist. They're really real. They're an odd consequence of the general theory of relativity. They possibly are the source of the x-ray binaries that we see in the sky. Tremendous sources of x-rays as matter falling into them is heated and compressed and shines forth at night. We can see these things that should otherwise be completely invisible to us because they do produce radiation. And in the last few years, we've learned not only to interpret those messages, from them, the x-rays coming from them, but actually to measure their masses and estimate their sizes. We really do live in a universe where black holes exist. What a wonderful thing that you can possibly imagine. And yet if we simply look at the system of stars within our own Milky Way, we're only just beginning to look at the universe. If I stand in the southern hemisphere in this beautiful photograph from Cerro Tololo, I look up at the night sky and I see the band of light called the Milky Way and two tiny blotches called the large and small Magellanic clouds. What I'm seeing is that we actually live in a disk galaxy. So one of the challenges of this class is I've always wanted in 161 and 162, I've always said I might, my goal is to change your thinking, but my agenda is actually fairly benign. What I want you to do is I want you to be able to walk outside and when you see the phase of the moon, sort of have a picture in your head of, oh yes, the moon and the earth circling each other and you can see the angle with the sun. If you can find the planet Venus on a night where you see the crescent moon just after sunset, see if on a dark night like that you don't actually, if you think about where the moon is and where Venus are with respect to the sun, if you don't for a brief instant feel yourself standing on the edge of an abyss, I really am on a planet looking out into space. You actually can feel that way sometime if you know what to look for. That's what I mean by changing the way you look. This summer, I would like all of you to do something for me. Go out to a quiet, clear place where the sky is dark and see the Milky Way. Some of you, perhaps, for the first time. Or maybe you've seen it all your life, but you'll look at it for the first time and know what you're looking at and see if, and perhaps, you don't feel, yeah, I actually live in a disk galaxy. I actually live in the plane of an immense system of 200 billion stars, 30 kiloparsecs in radius. And we're sitting out there on a star orbiting the center of this region. 
This is what our galaxy looks like in a panorama from space. I really am at the center of a disk galaxy. But the disk galaxy of the Milky Way is not the only galaxy out there. It's just one of many. Nearby, 2 million, well, 850 parsecs away, if you kill a parsecs away, light travel time nearly 2.5 million years. We can look out to a near twin of us, the Andromeda Galaxy, a vast system of stars, gas, and dust that are forming stars even now. It's like almost for the Milky Way looking in a mirror. It gives us an idea of what, our, what we look like from the outside. Galaxies come in many varieties, bright, brilliant, pinwheel spirals, often beautiful barred galaxies, elliptical galaxies with virtually no structure at all, or irregular galaxies like the large Magellanic Cloud that have no particular shape in, in, in general, but they're immense puddles of gas forming stars even now as we speak. Sometimes galaxies collide together. Galaxies are big compared to the distances between them, and occasionally they, they tear at each other only through gravity. The stars miss each other like two fleas crossing the Grand Canyon, but these galaxies, as they tear themselves apart, are actually going to eventually merge, and they're going to form perhaps into an elliptical galaxy. We look at a picture like this and think it has nothing to do with this, but in fact, if some people are right, the Milky Way and Andromeda may be moving towards each other, and maybe three, four billion years in the future, this is what the Milky Way and Andromeda will look like. They'll be doing this sort of gravitational pas de deux across the sky and gravitationally changing into something else. Will the sun be included in whatever else is it, or will the sun be one of those stars flung out into the spaces between the galaxies? We don't know, but it's interesting to speculate. But we can see examples as we look around us. Many examples of what happens when galaxies collide, forming new galaxies rather than simply wrecks. We see places in the, in the universe where light is shining so brightly from the center of a galaxy that it outshines all the billions of stars within that galaxy. And yet the size, time variations, and the brightness tell us it's coming from a region no bigger than our solar system. What are these objects called the quasars? Sometimes they're big, picking out huge jets of material. This is the elliptical galaxy in Virgo, which is showing out this tremendous jet of material traveling at 99.99% the speed of light, these electrons bounding out here and making their presence known. What we're probably seeing are supergiant black holes swallowing as much as the mass of a single star per year, slowly dribbling in and emitting radiation from radio all the way out to the gamma rays, spinning up and spitting out matter along their poles, the active galactic nuclei. Our own black hole is quiet, but in some galaxies those black holes are far from quiet. What I spend my time thinking about when I'm doing my research is a lot of what these things are, how they work, how you feed them, how big their black holes are. These are all answerable questions, believe it or not, even though they seem so far removed from what we are every day. Galaxies come as singles, like this beautiful picture of NGC 4414, which is from the Hubble Space Telescope, one of the real iconic galaxies that has been the logo for this class throughout the entire quarter. But galaxies sometimes come in groups, and those groups sometimes into vast clusters of thousands upon thousands of galaxies, like flocks of birds going through the night. These vast clouds of galaxies are very different environments. When we measure the motions of these galaxies, we find a surprising fact. They're moving faster than their starlight says they should. The galaxies are rotating faster than they should. And the reason is because even though the starlight is what we see, it's not all that it is. It's the tip of the iceberg, the froth at the edge of the matter spectrum. These things are made mostly of dark matter, a form of matter that we don't even know what it is yet, but it seems to constitute most of the matter in the universe. It's actually we are made of the minority of stuff. We can look out into even the depths of space now. Our surveys are beginning to reach out to when the universe, we've now mapped out the universe to the point of what it was looking back three, four billion years into the past. And we find that galaxies are not simply randomly scattered around the sky, 
But they organize themselves into immense filaments, walls surrounding empty voids where there's no matter, no galaxies within them, or very, very little. What this is seeing here is the effects of gravity. Gravity is what holds us on the Earth. It's what holds the Earth around the Sun. It's what holds the Sun in the Milky Way and the Milky Way within the local group, which causes the local group to fall into the Virgo cluster. And that Virgo cluster is part of a small supercluster, which on this particular diagram is an unimaginably large structure, but is barely on the central pixel of this diagram. What we're seeing are immense clusters of clusters filling the sky. We're seeing the handwriting of gravity on the sky. All of these things were shaped by gravity in the gases that formed, cooling out of the Big Bang that formed the universe. When we look into space, we see galaxies as far as we can see. This is the deepest picture ever taken of the sky by the Hubble Space Telescope. There are thousands upon thousands of galaxies. When you collect out to the entire sky, there are probably as many galaxies in the visible universe as there are stars in the Milky Way, 200 billion perhaps visible to us. We're not even made of the same stuff of the universe. Energy is, in fact, even more important than matter. I can make a pie diagram for the contents of the universe, and we are the yellow, thin scribble on the end of this thing. We're practically a fraction of a percent, 0.4% of the matter in the universe organizes itself into stars and planets. That matter is what determines the future of the universe and the Big Bang. Do we expand forever? Do we expand to a maximum size and then collapse back into a big crunch? Or does that expansion simply accelerate forever until the universe gets old and cold and ends in a big chill? The universe we think, in fact, is this universe over here on the right, that we are an accelerating, expanding universe, a conclusion nobody would have expected before two years ago, and now it's the only kind of cosmology people talk about. We can actually look back through cosmic history. That's one of the beauties of the fact that light has a finite speed. As I look into the distance, I look into the past. I don't have to guess that the universe is evolving and expanding. I can watch that evolution and expansion before my very eyes. We can see all the way back to the epoch of the Big Bang, to recombination. But there's even stranger things we can do. We can contemplate traveling through space and time through the agency of wormholes. If wormholes actually exist, maybe these become the conduits by which we can travel to the stars. We can even contemplate the question of whether there's life on other planets, when life emerged and where it might be, and even go so far as to search for it. In these searches and our studies, we bring together all the tools of our technology, the Hubble Space Telescope and even the brand new telescope that Ohio State is building. But the greatest tool we bring to the one is the one that no technology can provide, and that is our imaginations. Albert Einstein, probably the most famous man in the 20th century, said that the only thing incomprehensible about the universe is that it is comprehensible. But I think, in fact, the final word needs to go to Isaac Newton. I do not know how I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. It's been a pleasure for the last ten weeks, and may you all enjoy your own journeys on the great ocean of truth. Thank you.